Welcome to another episode of From the Depths, based on Rabbi Ephraim Ushri's Questions and Responses from the Holocaust. I'm Dr. Shimon Blau. This series contains depictions of atrocities committed by the Nazis which may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Rabbi Ushri writes that on September 19, 1941, the Nazis started requiring the Jews of the ghetto to provide a thousand workers to work on their airfield. Every day, these Jews would leave very early in the morning before sunrise, and they would return late at night after sunset. And the Nazis would provide these workers on this work detail uh, a small meal of some soup which contained non-kosher food. In Rabbi Ashri's Annihilation of Lithuan Jewry, he explains with a little bit more detail that the soup actually contained uh, bits of horse meat. Initially, there were many Jews who were Orthodox and kept kosher who did not want to eat from the soup, but as time went on, they became more and more weakened from the starvation and the hunger, and they approached Rabbi Yashri to ask him if it was okay for them to eat this soup. The reason being that this should fall under what's known as Sakanas Nafashos, danger to life, in which case Torah commandments are suspended. I'd like to provide a little bit of background to this question. The Torah says in Vayikra, Perek Yudches, Pasek Hei, Leviticus 18.5, V'chai behem, and you shall live by them. The Talmud in Tractate Yuma 85b states that we learned from this that v'chai behem, you shall live by them, v'lo behem, but should not die on account of them. This teaches us that if somebody's life is in danger, the commandments are suspended, and a person should save his life. The classic example of this is if somebody holds a gun to a Jew's head and says, if you don't eat this treif sandwich, this cheeseburger, I'm going to pull the trigger and kill you, the Jew is actually obligated to eat the cheeseburger and not to risk his life. There are three exceptions. These include avodazara, shvichastamim, and gilu yarayas, which mean idol worship, killing somebody else, and certain immoral relations. The Talmud in various places explains the reasons for these exceptions, but for the most part, saving one's life overrides all of the Torah's commandments. Explains Rabbi Ashri, what the question really boiled down to is, do we say that this dispensation of pikuach nefesh, of saving a life, where the Torah's commandments are deferred, does that apply even in a situation where the danger to life might come about at a later time? Or do we say that it only applies if there's a clear and present danger? Because these Jews who worked at the airfield were not in any clear and present danger, but were worried that if they didn't have the energy and the stamina, over time, their weakness would lead to a situation where their lives would be in danger. So to answer this question, Rabbi Ashri first quotes from the Talmud in Tractate Yuma, Pegim Alamad Aleph, 83a. The Mishnah in Yuma talks about whether or not somebody who is sick can eat on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar and is a fast day where every Jew is required to fast. However, if somebody is sick and there is a danger to life, clearly, as we have already explained, we should live by them and not die by them. There's a dispensation to allow somebody to eat. The Mishnah there states that we feed a sick person on the advice of experts, referring to medical professionals. If there are no medical professionals available, no experts available, then we feed him according to his own assessment of himself. What happens if the doctor says one thing and the patient says something else? So the Gemara says as follows, that Rabbi Yanai said that if the sick person says, I need to eat, and the doctor says he doesn't need to eat, then we listen to the sick person. What's the reason for this? Lev yodea maras nafsho. This is a quote from Proverbs 14.10. The heart knows the bitterness of its soul, meaning that the person who is sick really has an acute understanding of what he is feeling and his condition. The Gemara asks, Pshita, this is obvious, meaning there's a general rule of Suffolk Nefashas Tahakal that in questions of uncertainty regarding life, we always rule leniently. The Gemara answers that we might have thought that the doctor knows better than the patient. Therefore, Rabbi Yanai informs us that that's not the case and we listen to the patient himself.
Rabbi Yanni continues with another law. If a doctor says he needs to eat, but the sick person says he doesn't need to eat, we actually listen to the doctor in that case. What's the reason for that? The reason for that is because we assume that delirium has taken over the patient and he's not thinking clearly. So in both cases, we rule leniently and allow the patient to eat. The rush, Usher Ben Yechiel, one of the early Talmudic commentators, quotes a different version which is brought down in certain versions of the Talmud that goes like this. When Rabbi Yana said that we listen to the patient when he says that he needs to eat, even though he is contradicting the medical advice from the doctor, the Gemara asks, of course, Whenever there's a question of life, we rule leniently. To which the Gemara answers, we might have thought that that which the sick person is saying that he needs to eat, it's because he's afraid, and it's an irrational fear, that if he doesn't eat, he's going to die. Therefore, Rabbi Yanai teaches us that no, we actually do listen to him. We do believe him when he says that his condition is severe enough to require him to eat. Based on this version, says the Rush, it would seem that the only time we allow somebody to eat on Yom Kippur is when this doubt when this suffolk, that he might die, is an imminent danger. If he doesn't eat, he will die pretty much immediately on that same day. Says the rush that this is a pretty big chumr. This is a pretty big stringency. Because to say that the only time we would allow somebody to eat on Yom Kippur is if they don't eat, they will die. That's not the general case that usually occurs. Usually, a doctor will not say, if you don't eat right now, you are going to die. But rather, a doctor will say, if somebody doesn't eat, their condition may deteriorate to the point where their condition can worsen and they can be at risk. So the Rush says that even according to this version of the text of the Talmud, we shouldn't learn from this that the only time we would allow somebody to eat on Yom Kippur is if they don't eat, they will definitely die and that their death would be imminent. Because even in a situation where if somebody would not eat, their condition would deteriorate to the point where they might be at risk, somebody would be allowed to eat. Says the Tor, Rav Yaakov ben Asher, upon which the Shulchan Aruch is based, similarly, that when it comes to somebody who is sick eating on Yom Kippur, we ask a Rofe Bucky, an expert doctor, and if the doctor says that it's possible, Efsher, if it's possible that if this patient doesn't eat, his situation will deteriorate and he might come into a situation of a sakana, of being in danger, we feed the patient upon the doctor's advice, uh, and the doctor does not have to say definitively that he might die. He doesn't even have to say the words, he might die. As long as he says that the patient's condition might deteriorate to the point where it might be dangerous, we feed the patient. This is, of course, for the same reason that we've mentioned already, Suffolk Nefashus Lahakel, that when it comes to any sort of doubt with regards to human life, we rule leniently. Based on this, says Rabbi Ashri, it's pretty clear that when it comes to this rule of pikuach nefesh, of saving a life. We don't necessarily just go according to the current situation. We don't ask ourselves, is the immediate situation a danger? But rather, even if something can lead to a situation where there would be a danger, we feed a sick person on Yom Kippur. The Torah laws are overridden. According to this, says Rabbi Ashri, you can make the very strong argument that the Jews who are working in the airfield would be allowed to eat this soup that had non-kosher meat in it, because even though they might not have been in immediate danger of dying, if they didn't eat the soup, they would come to a situation where their lives would be at risk. He adds that even if you would ask the greatest doctors, the greatest experts, they would tell you that the conditions of hard labor and starvation that the Jews were subjected to would be nearly impossible to live under for any extended period of time. So based on this, there is clearly an argument to made that because of Sakanas Nafashas, risk to life, 
Given the hunger, given the hard labor, the Jews would be allowed to eat the soup. To prove his point as far as how dangerous the hunger and starvation really was, he quotes the Gemara in Baba Basra, Chesam Beis, 8b, which quotes the verse in Jeremiah and Yirmiah 15.2. Hashem, God was telling the prophet Jeremiah how to respond when asked by the people what the future exile held for them. God's response was, And it will be when they say to you, To where shall we depart? And you shall say to them, Thus said Hashem, Those destined for death will die by death, meaning a natural death. And those destined for death by the sword will die by the sword. And those destined to die from hunger will die from hunger. And those destined for captivity will depart to captivity. Says Rabbi Yochanan that each subsequent calamity was worse than the one preceding it. Hunger was mentioned third in a list of four. Now, says Rabbi Yashri, all of these proofs that we've brought so far might only be applicable to somebody who's a chola, to somebody who's sick, and whose situation might deteriorate and get worse. However, the Jews in the ghetto, despite their dire circumstances, weren't actively sick at the time. So the argument that we have to worry about what their situation might come to in the future might not be applicable. Therefore, Rabbi Yashri brings another proof. This proof is from Tractate Shabbos, Samachtes Samach Beis 69b. This is a well-known Gemara, which talks about what a person should do if they find themselves in a desert and forget what day of the week it is. So what should they do as far as keeping Shabbos? So there's two opinions. Rabbi Huna says that the person should count six days and then should count the seventh day as the Sabbath. And Chiyabar Rav says that a person should keep that first day as Shabbos, then count six days, and the seventh day after that would be Shabbos again. The Gemara brings several proofs to show that the opinion of Rabbi Huna is the correct one, that the proper thing to do is to count six days first and then keep Shabbos. The Gemara then quotes Rava, who said that on each day the person should do the work that he needs to do, except for the day of the Shabbos, the seventh day. The Gemara asks, should he die on that day? Should he just not have anything to eat? So the Gemara answers that the day before, the day that he's counting as the sixth day, which would be our Friday, he does enough work to have enough food for both that day as well as the following day. The Gemara asks, but it could be that the day which he is counting as the sixth day is actually the Shabbos. Rather, the Gemara says, each and every day the person should do as much as he needs to survive, including on the day that he's counting as being the Sabbath. If so, how does he recognize that that day is considered Shabbos? By making Kiddush, by making the blessing on the wine or the food that he has available, Vavdalasa, and on making Havdalah, which is the prayer that we make uh, on Saturday night to commemorate the conclusion of the Sabbath. After quoting this Gemara, Rabbi Ashri quotes from a Sefer, and he uses an acronym for the Sefer, Tuf Vav Shin, which I believe is Tosefes Shabbos by Rabbi Rafal Maizels, who wrote that if the person is able to fast on the one day that he is considering to be Shabbos, then it's actually prohibited for him to do any sort of work on that day because there's no question of pikuach nafesh, of saving a life on that day. He then quotes from Sefer Bigde Yesha, and there are actually five different books that have this title written by different authors. I'm pretty sure that he's quoting from the Bigde Yesha, which was written by Rabbi Yeshaya Halevi Horowitz, who was known as the Shla. The Bigde Yesha argues with the Tosefa Shabbos and writes that there's no reason for somebody to afflict himself with a fast on the day that he's counting as Shabbos, because even though he's not in any immediate eminent danger, the person's greatest mission at that time is to get out of the situation that he's in. It's to get out of the desert. Says Rabbi Yashri from the words of the Big Day Yesha, it's clear that somebody who finds himself in a situation that could lead to a saikana, which could lead to a dangerous situation, 
Torah prohibitions are suspended, and the situation with the Jews in the Kovno ghetto was no different. He then brings one more proof from the Tosefta and Shabbos, Perek Tezayin Halacha Yud Gimel, which is also found in the Talmud Bavli in Tractate Yuma, Pehei Yamad Beis, 85b. The Tosefta and the Gemara discuss the biblical source for the law that saving a person's life takes precedence over the laws of the Sabbath. As an introduction to this, Rabbi Elazar uses what's known as a Kalvachomer. In Latin, this is known as a fortiori argument. Kalvachomer literally means lenient and strict, and it employs the following logic. If a case which is generally strict has a particular leniency, then a case which is generally more lenient will certainly have that same leniency. With this in mind, Rabbi Elazar learns from the case of bris milah, circumcision, that a person's life takes precedence over the laws of the Sabbath. There's an obligation for every Jewish boy to have a circumcision, to have a bris, and this is supposed to be done on the eighth day after the baby is born. What happens if the eighth day after a baby is born is the Sabbath? Performing any sort of medical procedures on the Sabbath is something which is not allowed, so which takes precedence, the laws of the Sabbath or the bris milah? The Talmud in Tractate Shabbos learns that the bris milah actually takes precedence and is performed on the eighth day even if that eighth day is the Sabbath. In addition, the punishment for not having a bris, for not being circumcised, is what's known as kares, being cut off from the Jewish people. This is a punishment which is not meted out by the Jewish judicial system, but rather through the hands of heaven, and only occurs later on in life. With this in mind, Rabbi Elazar makes the following argument. He states that if we find that mila, circumcision, overrides the laws of Shabbos, and this is because in the future if somebody remains uncircumcised, he is liable to kares, then we can make the following Kalvachomer argument. If for just one aver, for just one organ, for one appendage, the Sabbath laws are overridden, then all the more so for one's entire body, the laws of Sabbath should be overridden. Says Rabbi Ashri, this entire argument is predicated on the idea that the violation of Shabbos is allowed for a sakana, for a danger, the danger of kares, which will only come at a much later time. So too, in the case of the Jews in the Kovno ghetto, even though the danger to life might only come at a later time, they were allowed to violate the laws of keeping kosher in order to keep themselves strong. Rabbi Ashri adds that the Av Beisdin, the head of the Jewish rabbinical court, and the chief rabbi of Kovno, Rabbi Avram Dovber Kahana Shapiro, also agreed to allow them to eat the non-kosher meat. Rabbi Ashri adds that after the Holocaust, his friend Rabbi Asher Babed showed him a ritva, which was an early commentator on the Talmud, Rabbi Yomtov ben Avram, in Tractate Shabbos, Daf Samach Tes Amid Beis, 69b, and he then quotes this ritva. I'm going to be honest, I reviewed this multiple times and couldn't make much sense out of it. I didn't understand how this ritva pertains to the question at hand, and when I actually checked the source based on the version of the ritva that we have today, the text seems to be much different than what Rev. Ashri quotes. I suspect that there may have been an error in dictation or a copier's error. However, the ritva in the very next paragraph actually does provide a proof to Rabbi Ashri's argument. The ritva talks about the case that we've previously mentioned. If somebody finds himself stuck in the desert, not knowing exactly which day is Shabbos, he's supposed to count six days and then the seventh day would be considered Shabbos. The ritva quotes from the Ri, who says that on the day that he considers Shabbos, he's allowed to travel as much as he's able. Now, in general, on the Sabbath, there are certain laws and restrictions with regards to how far somebody can travel. Despite this, says the Ri, the most important thing is for this person to get out of harm's way and out of danger. So even though there are restrictions with regards to how far somebody can travel on the Sabbath, this is overridden so that he can get himself out of danger. This ritva is an obvious proof to Rabbi Ashri's argument that the commandments are overridden in a situation which may lead to a dangerous situation, even if the current situation is not dangerous. This has been From the Depths. 
with Dr. Shimon Blau. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear more episodes, please subscribe. Music by Dexter Britton.